0: The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, we are in a series called The Church That Jesus Builds, where we're taking each of Jesus' words from Matthew 16, 18, where he promises that he will build his church. And we're going to, we're pausing each week on every one of these words. So in week one... Aaron taught on what it means that I will build my church, that Christ will build his church. Aaron told us that it is Jesus' work that makes the church go. He's not some distant, far-off, aloof God. Rather, he is present and in our midst, in our laboring, in our teaching, in our fellowship. Jesus is there, intimately involved with us. Aaron said that Jesus is personally committed to his church. Think about that. that. Jesus of Nazareth takes up our cause. Jesus is personally growing his church, that he is active in the nooks and crannies of our lives. He is, he is trimming the wicks of the candlestands of Ridgewood. And Jesus is personally caring for his church. Jesus is not aloof to us. He is not aloof to our hardships. He is not aloof to our hopes. He's not aloof to our needs. Jesus says, I will build my church. Last week, we considered what it meant that Jesus will build his church. We looked at Revelation 7, which is the end game of all of history. It is the the point where all of history is headed, where the multitude is gathered around the throne. And we said last week that, that this is an inevitability, that Jesus will gather a people from all peoples, that Jesus will be eternally adored by his people, and that Jesus will shepherd forever his people. And we said that there comes with that a challenge and an encouragement. The challenge is that as Ridgewood Church, we're to be about the kingdom. We're to be about seeing Christ magnified, not first seeing Ridgewood Church's branding disseminated amongst the nations. But there's also an encouragement that Jesus will do this, like a spiderweb stopping an avalanche, right? Jesus will bring about this reality. Jesus will build his church. Now today, we're gonna consider what it means that Jesus will build his church. What does it mean that Jesus will build his church? Now, I wanna ask you, what is the most impressive structure you've ever seen? The most impressive structure you've ever seen. Maybe you're, maybe you're thinking of the physique of your, your husbands, ladies. That's not quite what I mean. The most impressive structure. That's, that's what my wife was thinking of, certainly. <laughs> maybe you've been to the USS Yorktown. Has anybody been to the Yorktown down in Charleston? That thing is bonkers. Have you seen that? It is one of those uh, gigantic battleships and it's like got bolts the same diameter as hula hoops. You know what I mean? Just this unreal engineering feat. Uh, maybe you've been to Europe and seen some of those castles or cathedrals or whatever kind of littered about all across Europe. They, they seem otherworldly, just really amazing and beautiful. Never seen one in person, hope to, Lord willing, one day. I think of Jim Slice. I don't know if Jim is in here, but a couple of uh, years ago, he was teaching around Advent, and he said that, and I can't give him enough grief about this, he said that he loved being at the doctor's office because of how sterile it was. You guys remember that? Uh, I wonder if Jim, in his mind, like doctor's offices are like the supreme kind of human achievement when it comes to impressive structures. For me, I would say it's probably the Biltmore House. Has anybody ever been to the Biltmore House? The Biltmore House is Absolutely incredible. A couple of years ago, Emily and I went around Christmas, and it is just impossible to not be swept up by the Biltmore House. This thing was built in 1895, and it is huge with a capital Y, right? Like it is gigantic and absolutely astounding. Just absolutely beautiful. The, the romance of the space, you find yourself speaking with the transatlantic accent, kind of as you're moving through the building, you find yourself walking more prim and proper. It has an amazing power over you. It's the the beauty and the decor in its room after room after room, just the sheer square footage of the space. It's absolutely remarkable. Now, if you were to rewind the clock to about 950 B.C., and you were to ask an Israelite that same question, what's the most impressive structure that you've ever seen? The answer would be, without a doubt, the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. The beauty, the size, the romance, all the rest, The, the remarkable reality of this temple and at the heart of giving of the temple is this truth, that God is a dwelling God who wants to be near to his people. He, he wants to cover his world with his glory. God, of course, dwells in heaven, but God wants to bring heaven into his creation. He wants to share himself with his world. And the temple for the people of Israel was the, the prime example of that. It was the place where heaven and earth overlapped, and it was this amazing structure. But actually, when you read through the Old Testament, you see that this idea of temple is actually in in various forms kind of all throughout the story of the Bible. I think of the first pages of the story of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. Eden is portrayed as a kind of temple. When the temple is built, it has echoes of Eden. And what we're, I think, supposed to see there is that the temple is almost, uh, Eden rather, is almost given to us as this picture of the temple. That God's world has always intended to be a place that overlapped with heaven where God could dwell with his people. You have the story of the patriarchs who go about the promised land, building these altars which are in a way a kind of proto-temple. Then, of course, you have the Lord's presence dwelling in the tabernacle. As the people of Israel are rescued from Egypt, God inhabits the people as he inhabits the tabernacle. But then, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm going to read this scripture for us. This is absolutely key. This is a game changer. This is where God makes a promise to King David. He says this, 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Watch this, verse 13, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne should be established forever. God, through the prophet Nathan, tells David, there's going to be an offspring that's going to come from you, and I'm going to establish your offspring and his kingdom, and he is going to build a house for my name. Now, if you, if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that David does indeed have a son, a guy called Solomon, and Solomon does indeed build this beautiful structure, the temple, what we think of, what we referenced a moment ago. Beautiful and detailed and ornate and just brilliantly built, an impressive structure, to be sure. But ultimately it results in it being destroyed in 586 BC because of Israel's unfaithfulness. They're they're called to be a priestly people, but they worshiped false gods, and the result is God judges and destroys the temple. And so the prophets sort of are are left with this question: you know, what's gonna be done about this temple? What's gonna be done about this promise? The prophets say, through God's Holy Spirit working in them, the prophets say that one day God will build a new temple, a better temple. He's going to restore the glory of the temple, and then some. And then Jesus appears, a son of David. And he says things like, I have a kingdom. I have a kingdom that's not of this world. He says things like, David understood that his son would be greater than he is. And I am the son of David. And then in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says... I'm here to build that house for God's name, to build his temple. But not a building, not a structure made of dead stone carved out of ancient granite from the side of a hill somewhere, not out of mortar and brick and nail and wood. No, the house that Jesus is building, listen, is his church. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus says, I have come to build God's temple, not from dead stones, but living stones. My temple is made up of my people. And Peter one of Jesus's followers, one of his disciples, that ends up uh, being the uh, sort of lead apostle as the church is being established in the early ages, writing a letter to a bunch of Christians on the margin who are struggling and suffering for their faithfulness to Christ. Again and again, this letter he reminds them that Christ is rejected, and that means that we can expect that that's going to be the case for us. Don't be surprised, he says. But he also wants to encourage them: don't grow weary in your sufferings; don't go grow weary in your hardships. Recognize that Jesus is the living stone upon whom the structure of the Spirit is being built. He draws from a couple of Psalms and he says that Jesus is the, he's like a, a, a living stone that's become the cornerstone. It was a living stone that was rejected. It was considered by Israel to be unfit for the building up of the spiritual house. But God has chosen him. He is chosen and precious. And from Christ, he's building up his temple. We're told that people were stumbling over Jesus. He became a stumbling block as he was destined to be. In other words, it was always God's plan to use the Jewish rejection of Jesus to welcome in the Gentiles. And then certainly drawing on Jesus' words in Matthew 16, he says that you guys, you knuckleheads, y'all are living stones being built into a spiritual house. Actually, it's probably more properly rendered a house of the spirit with a capital S. And I think Peter understands what Jesus was saying, that Jesus came to build that house for God's name in fulfillment of what God promised to do through the offspring of David, that Jesus came to build that house for God's name. But it's not not a building, not a structure of dead stone. No, Jesus is building his church. Have you ever thought for a second about the staggering reality that the people of God are the temple of God. Maybe think of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul says that we are temples of God's Holy Spirit. If you read through portions of the Old Testament where the Lord's presence descends, what is typically the case? I mean, often it's accompanied by peals of thunder and lightning and fury, right? Clouds and a booming voice in majesty. And the New Testament has the audacity to tell us people like us, saints like us, normal, average people like us, that we are the place where God's spirit dwells. The same God who descended on Sinai, the same God whose glory descended on the temple of Solomon, his glory has descended on us. We are the temple. And in some ways, I don't know if it strikes you this way, In some ways it makes no sense because I know me. And, you know, get what I'm saying? I know you, right? We know each other. And so it's mind-bending to think that the Lord would do something like this. But God in his grace is a God who wants to dwell with his people. And he has promised to be a God who dwells with his people. And through the blood and suffering and sacrifice of Jesus who atones for our sin, God completes that by making us his temple of his spirit. Peter also tells us in the same passage, he also says that you are the priesthood that offers sacrifices through the great high priest, who is Jesus. Again, it's astounding to think about, I mean, the holiness and the reverence that the, the Old Testament scriptures treat to the sacrificial system and to the priesthood. And Peter says, you, you guys, us, we, those who follow Christ, are the new priesthood. Offering sacrifices to our daily lives. I think of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says that we are to offer our lives as living sacrifices. And the, the mundane, the nuts and bolts of the ordinary things that we do, we are like priests who are offering up sacrifices to the God of all things. All right, so what does it mean that Jesus will build his church? The first thing that we can say is this. Jesus is building up a spiritual house of living stones, that Jesus is welcoming people into his church. That Jesus is welcoming people into his church. The story of the gospel begins with the story of the fall, with a capital F. We, as image bearers, were created to be, in a sense, kings and queens of this world, but we rejected him. Adam and Eve, our first parents, rejected God. And the result is the world is cast into disarray. We now live in a land of pandemics and tombstones, we've said, of Hevel. The world is cast into disarray. But God is a merciful God who sees us in our plight, who does not abandon His plan for us, but instead sends His eternal Son who has dwelled in eternal glory with the Father since before time began. He sends His Son to take on flesh, to literally take on human experience, the human body, to literally bear humanity, to live as we always ought to have lived, to come set everything to rights. He embraces death and judgment in our stead so that we could be pardoned and so that we could be made a temple of the Holy Spirit, so that we could be given new life as his new people before God and with God and for God forever. Living as renewed kings and queens, we might even say, of God's good world. It's the story of the gospel. And the way that we receive that salvation isn't from accumulating a certain number of good deeds. It is by simply, in humility, owning our sin and our fallenness before a holy God and receiving the pardon he offers us in Christ. And as that gospel message goes forth, as the Spirit moves through the teaching of the gospel... In settings like this, or over coffee at Starbucks, or over catechisms at the dinner table, as the Spirit moves through the gospel, He changes hearts and He indwells people. Again, knuckleheads like us. We're saved, we're given God's Spirit, and we become the place where, in a sense, heaven and earth overlap. That's His temple. As He welcomes people into His church, Jesus is building His temple. Verse 9 of that same passage in 1 first, first Peter chapter 2. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is a, a little bit of a, a random thought. We don't have a choice about being a possession. Something will possess us. Something will possess us. It might be our appetites. It might be our lusts. It might be our greed. Something will possess us. We will be enslaved by something. And the choice is to to give ourselves over to a taskmaster that hates us and wants to ruin us or to give ourselves over to a merciful God who sends the Lord Jesus for us. We are a people for God's own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you were fragmented, and you were scattered, and you were hopeless, and you were nameless, and you were lost. But now, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, you were children of wrath, you were objects of God's just judgment. But now, we have received mercy. Jesus welcomes people into his church, makes them a people, makes them his own possession, shows them his mercy. But that's not all, that's not the only thing that Peter has in mind when he says that we are being built up into a spiritual house. It's interesting in verse five that he has a a very present tense kind of notion at play here. This isn't a one-time move that takes place in Peter's mind. It's as if it's simply about getting souls converted, although that's obviously in view. But Peter speaks of this building up as actually an ongoing reality in the life of the Christian, that we are present tense, even after we're converted, being built up into a spiritual house. Paul picks up on this building imagery in Ephesians chapter 4. You can flip there, or you can scribble that down and go explore it later. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For what? For building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul kind of picking up in this idea of Christ building his church. I think it gives us the second sense of of what it means that Christ built his church. The first is that he's welcoming people into his church. The second is that Jesus is refining the people of his church. Jesus is refining the people of his church. Paul here speaks of the church being built up together into Christ. And he kind of switches the metaphor here from kind of a strict building metaphor. He moves to a, a body that's being built or a body that's maturing. Paul says that he wants to see these Ephesian believers Attained to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. He wants to see them mature into the fullness of Christ, he says. The fullness of Christ. If you've ever spent time reading through Ephesians, it is like too good to be true, after too good to be true, after too good to be true, after too good to be true. It's just amazingly rich and full of just gospel goodness. What Paul says is that he wants to see the church mature into the fullness of Christ. Have you considered that that is available to us? To be matured into Christ's likeness is an option. It is on the table for you. You are not stuck in whatever you feel like you're stuck in. It is on the table for you to mature into the fullness of Christ. I'm not saying that we're going to be perfect, I'm not saying that we'll ever achieve perfection this side of eternity, but growth is available to us by God's grace. Verse 15. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Think about the human body as it matures from childhood into adulthood. It's being built, we might say. It's growing. It's becoming taller and stronger, in some cases hairier, more, more complete, more full, more mature in every way. And Paul says, that's the goal for Christ's church. We're not to to linger in the gangly middle schooler age who's still learning their limbs. We're not to be an immature, gullible child, not a selfish me monster of a toddler, but maturity, fullness, completion, being built up in love into the fullness of Christ together. That's what's taking place here right now. By the Lord's grace, we are being built up together into the fullness of Christ as a family. Elsewhere, Paul says, Colossians 1:28 that he wants to see everyone presented mature in Christ. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all of God's energy that he powerfully works within me. In Galatians 4, he uses the, the language of a, a mom who is nearing giving birth. Galatians four nineteen he says that he is the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul wants to see the church built up into maturity. What does it mean that Jesus will build his church? That he's building a house for God's name. It means that Christ is welcoming us in, giving us his spirit, a spiritual house of living stones. But it also means that he is building his church by growing us, by refining us into the fullness of Christ himself together as one body. So two encouragements for us as we consider this. Encouragement number one, let's play the long game. Let's play the long game. You know, something that's always uh, stuck out to me about the New Testament is how much hay it makes out of blue-collar metaphors. You ever notice that? Metaphors for ministry in the Christian life. we've, We've already talked about, you know, this idea of a house being built If you survey the New Testament, especially the book of Acts and Paul's letters, one metaphor that you see over and over and over and over again for Christian discipleship and ministry is farming. What's consistent with that imagery of building and farming? It's a day-by-day, nail-by-nail, seed-by-seed, stone-by-stone, moment-by-moment, stick-to-itiveness. Just a willingness to play the long game. If there's one virtue that's constantly overlooked or or one element of Christian discipleship that it goes, you know, under-celebrated, it's faithfulness. It's just just doing the thing. Just doing the thing and confidence that the Lord Jesus is using the thing. It's day after day playing the long game with patience, trusting that there is always, always, always more going on than what meets the eye. I've heard it said before that, that we have a tendency to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in a lifetime. You ever heard that before, that notion? We, we, we overestimate how much weight we can lose or how much we can add to our bench press or, or how many books we can read in a year, but we way underestimate what that could look like over the course of a lifetime. And Christian discipleship is about long-game faithfulness. Christ building his church is about long-game faithfulness. Just sewing and sewing and building and building and nailing and nailing and lugging wood and, and everything in between and just trusting that Jesus is at work in that. Let's play the long game. The second encouragement for us is let's not lose sight of what's taking place. For those of you who have ever renovated anything in your house, what sustains you in that building project? Because inevitably there, there's, there's a point where it gets really sticky and expensive and exhausting and exhausting And you undercover water damage that you didn't know was there. It's always more work than you bargained for. It looked way easier on the YouTube tutorial than it does when you actually get to work. What keeps you going? When When the budget balloons and the wood gets real stubborn and the work gets behind schedule, how do you remain sane? And the answer is your vision of what this thing will one day be. I heard an author, Jerry Bridges, one time, he used this illustration Asking kind of that similar question, you know, what sustains us in the Christian life as we as we go about being built up in Christ. He said, Imagine one of those vast, impressive structures, a cathedral, let's say. And let's say that there's three bricklayers who are at work at this cathedral. It's the heat of the summer, it's July in South Carolina, it's that dreadful like 2:15, 2:30 in the afternoon where the Burger King's really settled in and you or the Moes and you're feeling really groggy, really sleepy. You go to bricklayer number one, you say, What are you building? The guy says, a wall, just got to brick by brick, just got to build this wall. You got a bricklayer number two, he said, what are you building? He's like, just a room, just brick by brick, got to build a room. You got a bricklayer number three, we said, what are you building? And he says, a cathedral. Which of these guys doesn't flame out? The one with the vision, the one who hasn't lost sight of what's being built. And so the encouragement for us is, as we go about doing ministry and as we, as we go about doing our disciplines, Let's not lose sight of what Jesus is building in us. Are you ever burnt out and exhausted in the Christian life? Evangelism feels fruitless or pointless or awkward? Does obedience some days feel like drudgery? Have you had a hard time some days seeing the beauty and freedom of holiness? Do the roots of your own sin go deep and get real stubborn? Does your Bible reading feel hollow and empty and rote? Do your prayers bounce off the ceiling? Does your service and your hospitality and your generosity feel like you're emptying and emptying and emptying with no reward? Is, is your, are you even experiencing suffering where it feels pointless and endless with no rhyme or reason? You know what's actually taking place? is that the son of David is building a house for God's name. The vision of what Jesus is actually doing with this in us That vision is what sustains us, that Jesus will build his church. Let's not lose sight of what's taking place here. Though this structure may be today unimpressive, though today it may look muddled and confused, though today it may be riddled with ups and downs, though today it's sticky, exhausting, And expensive, we know that the Lord Jesus is building his church, and it will be vast, and it will be impressive. It will be as limitless as the stars of the sky. It will be more beautiful, more precious than silver or gold, more radiant than the finest jewels, more white than the purest wool, more impressive than anything that the world has seen. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 and 11, the Lord says, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass I have purposed, I will do it. The Lord Jesus will build his church. May we be encouraged by that as a church family this morning. Typically, this seminar service, what we do is we pause to just reflect on the things that have been said. Uh, we'll have a minute or two to just sit and consider maybe how the Lord is stirring in you. Maybe you're here today and you have never believed on Christ, you don't even know what that even means. I would love to speak with you. Aaron would love to speak with you. Whoever invited you would love to speak with you. We would love to share what that means, to, to believe in Jesus and to be forgiven of sins. Uh, you can come grab any of us after service. We'll be hanging out at, uh, in the lobby or by this back door here. We'll be happy to speak with you. These next few moments, let's pray and ask the Spirit you know, how, how he would have us to respond in light of what's been said. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for we ask for uh, the vision to see what it is that you are up to in our lives. We ask, Lord Jesus, for the ability, the, the vision to, the confidence even, the, the hope <coughs> to believe that you are indeed at work through these things and that, that you are building a church. And this is not instantaneous, this is a uh, a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, long-haul sort of deal. And so we pray, God, for just the confidence to keep plowing and keep going. We pray that we would see that through our through our practicing of forgiveness with each other as a church family, through our our disciplines, our our fasting, our times of solitude, our, our prayers, our Bible reading, through... Hosting people for community group. God, we pray that you help us to see what's actually taking place beneath the surface of all of that. Give us a kind of grace-fueled grit, a stick-to-itiveness that comes from your spirit to keep plugging. And Lord Jesus, we look with eager anticipation to the day where we can say we have arrived in the fullness of Christ where our maturity is complete and we are perfected and we are made whole. And we see all of our our efforts and all of our labor finally brought to fruition. we we pray that you would haste that day, Lord Jesus, that you would come and you would restore all things and, and you would restore us and complete us. But in the meantime, Jesus, we pray that you would work in us, pray that you would work in our church, that you give us confidence, give us vision, Give us that kind of long-term faithfulness, and we pray that you would be honorf- uh, honored and glorified and honorified, God, even, by our efforts. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.